Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by author and emergent strategist, Adrian Marie Brown. Adrian was born in El Paso, Texas. Her father was in the military and she spent much of her childhood abroad. She's also lived in Georgia, New York, and California. Her own writing style has been said to belong to the Afrofuturism genre. In 2010, she published the Octavia Butler Strategic Reader with Alexis Pauline Gums. She's the author of Emergent Strategy and the recently released Pleasure Activism. She's also the co-host of How to Survive for End of the World podcast, a lifelong facilitator, doula, and auntie living in Detroit. Adrian has worked extensively with numerous organizations on social justice. Following college, she worked with the Harm Reduction Coalition in Brooklyn and started working as a social justice facilitator. She would go on to facilitate the World Social Forum an annual meeting of civil society organizations and work with social justice organizations in Detroit. In 2006, she served as a consultant with Detroit Summer, a multicultural, intergenerational collective that worked to transform communities through youth leadership, creativity, and collective action from the ground up. There, she developed a strong relationship with the late activist Grace Lee Boggs. In 2013, she received a Detroit Night Arts Challenge Award to run a series of Octavia Butler-based science fiction writing workshops. In 2015, she collaborated to edit and release Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements a collection of 20 short stories and essays about social justice inspired by the iconic African-American science fiction writer. Adrian has worked with the Allied Media Conference as a host and facilitator. In 2018, she founded the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, a hub to experiment, think, facilitate, learn, and share emergent strategy. The Institute exists to help groups, organizations, and movements bring these principles into their work through facilitation and training. Adrian, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? You know, I am kind of floating on happy Happy to. <laughs> I'm really happy, um, uh-huh. and I, I um, 
I'm just back from a trip to Northern Ireland um, and London where I was getting to do science fiction work with my sister and a bunch of survivors of the conflict there. And I was just so inspired Then met all these incredible organizers in London who are playing with emergent strategy and then came home to launch Pleasure Activism. So it's just been this week of like all the different areas of my writing life getting met um, by the world in ways that feel really good. So, and then I get to be home taking baths and making smoothies. So <laughs> feeling <pretty good. laughs> Well, you know, yeah. um, I came to your book release and afterwards, you know, I felt so good because, good. you know, one of the links that we share is Detroit Summer. And yes. like I said, like, it was like seeing the roots of Detroit summer. I remember like in 91, I was living, leaving International Women's Day. I'm going out. Grace is coming in, and Grace says, we're going to do something, and it's important, and you, you need to come on. And then going to a meeting, I think like the following Wednesday, and sitting in a room packed with people who we weren't quite sure what it was going to do, but doing it. And after we did the first year, like, well, should we do it again? And that the people who participated said, well, yeah, you have to do it again. And in that room, I saw Invincible. I saw Jenny Lee. I saw all these people who have been volunteers, and I follow them, and I know them, who from, like, the very first year, you know, and we talked about planting these seeds, and from that Mm -hmm. seeds, all these things come out. And to me, it's not like, like someone said, oh, it's the freedom. I said, no, it's the roots that are expanding yes. and going and seeing it. And you're part yeah. of that. Yeah. It, it, uh-huh. I feel like it's one of the great fortunes of my life um, that when Detroit Summer reached out to me, um, you know, I guess it was 14, 15 years ago now <laughs> to mm-hmm. come and support them. Um, you know, at that point, they were t- talking and thinking about some transitions in the organization, right? That it had been mm-hmm. around, it had been volunteer-run and volunteer-led for a really long time. Um, and they were trying to figure out, like, how do we go forward? How do we keep going when folks are aging out and they're needing work mm-hmm. and all this stuff? Um, and saying yes to, to come to Michigan and, and do a little facilitation work with them really radically changed the trajectory of my life. Um, and I feel like it, it helped me to really tap into my purpose, both, um, you know, Grace was not the first person I met, and actually, I have to be honest, that I resisted Grace initially. <laughs> <laughs> I resisted her, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. I, um, I, I, I ran this, this meeting, and everyone there was basically kind of like very worshipful of Grace, you know, even if they were, you know, questioning some of the ideas or whatever, they were very much like Grace, 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 Grace. And I don't know why, but my sister was just like, you know, no one person should have that much influence. (laughs) And then, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I resisted. And then I met her and started having conversations with her myself and just felt completely wowed by how her mind worked and Mm -hmm. her commitment to asking big questions and being unafraid to really reckon with what what are we on earth for and what time is it in our journey here. And um, 
you know, what, what all can we change? You know, we, if we could change everything, how do we want to change it? Like, I, I just felt, and that piece that she offered, which is in every piece of work that I do, to transform yourself, to transform the world, um, it's just such a liberating life path. So it, it was, it's an honor to, to be on that path. And then it's fantastic to be in such an incredible community of people who are proliferating these ideas in so many different ways, you know. <laughs> like it really is. Mm-hmm. Everyone that you named who's in that room is creating or co-running or collaborating on different projects that really forward the work in continuous ways. And Detroit Summer Youth, you know, picked it up themselves and ran the program again last summer. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, it's really a rich, fertile ground. You know, and I think that that's, that's true because I know, you know, like there were all these circles and there was that level of where, where Grace was. And I think I was also fortunate enough to, to know Jimmy really closely the last couple uh, of years of his life. But there was that, that place of where Grace was like up on that pedestal, but there was also that part to also to see the human part of her. And like right. I know like the first year that I went to Maine with her after yeah. Jimmy died, okay, and I was her roommate, yeah. you know, and oh, she, wow. uh, you know, I was her roommate, which was so cool, and it was like, you were her roommate, I'm, I know, yes, you know, and, and I'm an NPR person, and she's an NPR okay. person, and yeah. I know that, you know, at 5 a.m. I heard the radio go on, but I'm going like, you know, I'm just going to lay here for a while, just listen, which is what I do, and I think that at 7, when I got up and started to move around, she sort of looked at me, and she said, do you stay in bed this late every day? You know, <laughs> and, and and the conversation began. And there yeah. were, I think that she valued people who could give her that pushback, you know, that push oh, back yeah. and forth. And and I also yeah. say that she had a Jimmy jacket. That year I got to channel Jimmy. She had a Jimmy jacket. She said, I think this will fit you. And, you know. Oh, and, I love and, that. You know, but to also to see that, that level of, vulnerability that that she was that yeah. person but she was also human and she right. learned and grew from that yeah i mean you i know, think you... that that was what was disarming when i actually finally like met her and started to get to know her was like yes she had this you know voracious mind and um and you know she was incredibly smart but, I always I feel very grateful that I met her when I did because I think um, she was patient with me in ways that you know I've heard from others that they didn't really experience with with her mm-hmm. um, and every time I would bring an idea or a project to her she was just very much like wow you know that's great and that lines up with stuff that we've been thinking about and you know tell me more um, both on the on the like work level, but also on the personal level, you know, she, everyone, she met everyone in my family at different points and, um, and remembered, you know, she'd be like, how, mm-hmm. how is your sister? How are those babies? What's going on with them? Like she just, there was such a, a part of her that really cared and understood that we weave community by caring about each other and by hearing about each other. And, um, and that was also a great teaching, but I, I love that, you know, I was with her near the end um, a few times. You know, I wasn't one of the primary people that was taking care of her, but I got to come and and visit and sing to her and 
you know, be a part of the team <laughs> in my own little way. And mm-hmm. it's just such a gift. Yeah, it's such a gift to be like, oh, you're this prodigious mind and prodigious life, but also you are now this, this very frail human being who's kind of confused as to why you're still here. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, angry at some of that and kind in some of that. And, you know, it was just, it was all there. And I think that's, you know, when I think about the kind of intellectual that I, I hope that I can be in this life, it really is like, oh, I want to I stay contactable and, you know, mm-hmm. I want to be the kind of person who still feels, you know, in the way that I felt like, oh, she still feels and she's, mm-hmm. she's still sitting with these questions. It's not like she, you know, one time I asked her towards the very end, you know, what are you thinking? What's on your mind? And she turned she said, nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nothing fucking great <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I, like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I love that you know like mm-hmm. the, the idea that her mind was able to rest and that that it's something about that gave me a lot of peace with her actual transition that she was like I'm ready and I worked hard and I'm, I'm ready to rest <laughs> you know um I, at the same time I love that you know she never stopped working really like until she was mm-hmm. like I have to be in a bed she was still like here's the next conference we're going to do Here's the next, you know, gathering. Here's the next publication. Here's the next pamphlet. And I also, I think that that idea that you don't stop producing thoughts, that you don't stop being part of a community at any point. Um, I, it's, I don't know. Yeah, I could talk about Grace. <laughs> I love her. So. Well, you know, I think that that's one of the things about Detroit Summer. And I'll tell, I often tell people, say, like, if, you know, you know, they always say, like, well, what do you want people to, what would you tell people was, was a great experience? What you did? And I would say that mm-hmm. it is Detroit Summer mm-hmm. because even from the beginning, mm-hmm. the importance of having that intergenerational aspect and yeah. that valuing of people from where they were in their lives, whether they were 16 or even like up to where, like you said, where Grace was like 100, even with Jimmy, when Jimmy knew that his days were sort of, that expiration date was coming when he was going on to something else, he still had that time to interact with and learn from and be open to. And having been, was that something as you looked at like, well, you know, what is this Detroit summer, you know? Was that one of the the aspects yeah. of it that sort of drew you to it? That it was that a place where whatever your ideals were, there might be a space for it. Oh yeah, I mean, I think what what drew me and you know what I'm facilitating, it's always a there's always a balance, right? I I have for a long time really tried to only facilitate for people I loved and groups that I cared about. And Detroit Summer just won my heart because it was such, I mean, a couple of things. One is there was such an earnest energy, right? Like it was a bunch of people who were super smart and had been organizing in a lot of different spaces. And there was an earnestness. Like we need to bring people together in this way. And if we bring people together in this way, we can change everything. And I was really caught by that hope. Um, And juxtaposing that hope, you know, to my first, drive around Detroit, getting the tour, and seeing how everything was falling down. And, you know, that first glimpse you have of the city when you don't really know how to look at it, like you really see that destruction. And uh, so trying to juxtapose that against these, like, earnest, brilliant, you know, hopeful people, 
I was hooked. You know, I was like, what mm-hmm. are they drinking? Like, how are they so hopeful and capable and possible? And then, you know, learning all the small different projects that they were up to at that time, they were really focused on making media. So it was like cooking with people, feeding people, having young people who felt like they were in charge of their own learning process. And through young people reaching the rest of the community and trusting that, like, if you give young people a supportive space, they will thrive in the realm of ideas. And if you give them that realm of ideas, that power, it will shape the rest of their lives. But they, that idea that you can, you can um, in a summer, you can transform someone so much that they become a responsible member of society, like they feel like what's happening in this society is in part up to my choices. I just think that's such a gift, and it's a gift that, you know, I've continuously uplifted as I've moved through lots of other kinds of work. But, um, and I, I think it deeply flows through emergent strategy, right, mm-hmm. is really mm-hmm. understanding the power of the small, the power of small changes, the power of the fractal that, like, a small group will, over time, impact the large formations of society. All of that, to me, I find very intoxicating and also very reachable. You know, I think so often in movement, we paint visions that are really beautiful, but also really grandiose and feel really far away. And like, oh, we can't reach that in our lifetime. That's never going to happen for us. You know, we should just do it in a mode of self-sacrifice for someone else. And this felt like a departure from that, because it felt like, yes, there are these large-scale things we're working on that are off in the distance, but there's also something we need to build right now with each other in this moment. Um, there's a way that we can build understanding and shape how we're, how we're experiencing this time. And that, yeah, I, I still return to that. Um, and I also feel like that idea of transforming yourself to transform the world, you know, I think I say it every day in some context. And mm-hmm. it really helps me move through moments when I'm like, how are we going to stop the apocalypse? <laughs> you know, how are we going to hold back climate crisis? How are we going to... Um, you know, in child sexual abuse, like really the massive questions of our time, I am able to humble myself into, well, what do I need to do in my own life and in my own practice and in my own behavior in order to have an impact towards that? And how can I make my singular behavior a collective behavior? Like how can I invite other people in here with me so it's not just I'm off by myself recycling, <laughs> you know, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. but I'm really tying it into a collective analysis. So I, I think that those things, this idea that, like, you work hard, you grow things, and then you break bread and you talk about it. And I don't know a better organizing model, you know. Uh-huh. You, you know, I'll tell you, one of the first, you know, that that's so fascinating that you talk about breaking bread because that was always important. And I know that yeah. one of the first organizing meetings that Jimmy and Grace brought this book, it was by Vincent Harding. I think it was, uh, it was called Breaking Bread. And it was like yes. passed out to everybody. And that was, that was just like so, so amazing. Well, I was going to say, how, how were you during that time? Were you like, you know, sort of young, wide-eyed, ingenue, like what was your energy coming into that space at that time? Well, you know what? Um, I always had that community part, and I could tell you, part of where Grace and I intersected was like Grace did the So Sad newsletter. I did Uh a newsletter which was by an organization called the Neighborhood Information Exchange, and I went around and talked to people in neighborhoods, 
And okay. I was put this old this old newsletter together and you know the um the organization would that. have would have like monthly workshops at the library that did it. But I like talking to people and you know how you talked about that <laughs> hope? You know, yes. because I would go into neighborhoods and I would meet these people who were people go like, oh, it's just horrible, look at this. But there was that hope. You know, there were people like the gardening angels who not only talked about gardening, but then went on where you had elders teaching people how to can and and women making pies and selling them to raise money for, you know, their kids' school clothes. And there was this it's really this huge level of hope, and you know, it's like yeah. you know, yeah. You know, I did the opening plenary for creating change, and they were like, you know, well, everyone calls Detroit, you know, the comeback city and everything, uh-huh. and you know, and one of the things <laughs> that I did, and I said, well, allow me to to um, quote that great philosopher L. L. Cool J. And I said, don't call it a comeback. We've been here for years, and we have, and there's a level Ooh. of resilience. That hope, like that, that imagination, that's I right really here like in that. Detroit. You know, I, you feel that I, way. I feel like I'm so glad you said that because when I travel right now, I feel like that's the number one thing people ask me. Oh, you made a comeback, and I'm then like, in a, you know, I'm like, no, actually, black people and brown people, are, you know, I have this like long spiel, and I, I can feel myself losing folks. You know, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. they just want to hear something like, yeah, it's all good now, <laughs> and. But I love that. That feels like a sharp, snappy comeback. It can also be like a, an entryway into like, don't invisibilize all the people who kept the city going. Exactly. Uh, the duration. Yeah. You know, I mean, who've been yeah. doing it forever, you know, and, and, yep. and in part because Grace knew them. And so if I should say, you know, you need to go over and talk to this person. And I go in and it would just like, like fill me up. And the fact that those first years that we would show up in a neighborhood and we'd say, well, we're here to kind of do that. And somebody might give you a hose and somebody would Mm. give you a rake. And and these kids (laughs) would go out and talk to people. And it was like, you know, really? A comeback? We've been doing it. We reinvent ourselves and we find ways to do that. Well, I'm going to take, we're going to take our first break and then we're going to, talk a little bit more so if you're just joining me this is collections by michelle brown and my guest is adrian marie brown this episode of collections by michelle brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on collections you know i about the time that you came in you know um my mother actually even did detroit summer you know it was like at first she said well well, what are you doing what are you doing (laughs) over there 
And um, and she came, and it went to the point to where one day she told me, would you quit telling people that I'm your mother? My name is Mary. <laughs> She's like, I got yeah. my own personality and my own life, and I'm here on my own accord. Okay. <laughs> exactly. And she found the thing that. that she she liked to do that gave her mm. joy. You know, and there'd be sometimes there'd be kids who'd be doing that, and you could I'd see her, she'd have them over in the corner. You know how how that old mother thing, you I'd see her finger going, and after that, yeah, well, we're not gonna have no more problems out of them. And they adored her. They adored her. I think there's mm-hmm. nothing like a mother that you know, you know, whether it's a community mom, right? But there's nothing like a mother mm-hmm. who you know will hold you accountable because they love you. Mm-hmm. I think it's like and such yeah. a huge gift, right? Mm-hmm. Like whether mm-hmm. you like, you know, in that moment, you're like, oh, don't tell me what to do. But I think that, that when I see the young people who have continued to flourish in the Detroit summer environment, it's young people often who are like, I need someone to be paying attention to me at this level, paying attention mm-hmm. to my soul and paying attention to whether my behaviors are in alignment with liberation practices. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so powerful to have you know, mm-hmm. have, have a community that does that. And, you know, and I'll tell you, and I think that the most, my mother died suddenly, but what really did oh, it was, I, I mean, we, her first uh, university, first UU was packed primarily with people, and many people who knew her from life, but a lot of people who had met her through Detroit Summer. Wow. You know, because she had, oh, she had cooked meals, you know, okay. she had cooked meals, she had talked, you know, Julia Putnam. Yes, Julia. Spoke. The original. Spoke. Our first oh, at your mama's funeral. Spoke, yes. I mean, and so it was uh. so great to have, I mean, and to have people who, who had been involved because it gave her that opportunity to find her passion, to find her pleasure, which made me mm. think about, because when you were at um, your book signing, someone had asked you how to find yes. uh, for their mother. And part of it yes. was letting her find being Mary and not yes. my mother. Yes, exactly. Well, and I think that, that if our parents live long enough, I think that's one of the gifts we get to return to them is mm-hmm. you've been defined by your your relationship to me and caring for me and me being at the center of your life, you know, for however long. Um, and now you get to return to yourself. And, you know, I know I've had this experience with my mom of just like, oh, right, like you're not just my mother. You are working and you're living and you are co-creating and you are learning. And that's such a gift. And I notice that I do this with my sister now because she's, she's the mother of three little children who I adore. And so I will often, you know, when I think to introduce her, I'm like, and she's the mother, <laughs> you know. And I don't mm-hmm. always think like, oh, is that what she wants me to bring in or that, you know, it just feels like such an important thing. But I do feel like I'm like, oh, right. And she's also always herself. But the way we see our moms is not always with, with an allowance for themselves. And so then, of course, we don't really allow for their pleasure. Um, mm-hmm. You know, of course, you don't really allow. I actually just had a friend of mine telling me that, that um, their daughter is, you know, struggling with, you know, she's hitting the adolescence, struggling with some, some issues around sex and identity. And she's like, you know, and then I have to go through the torture. Sometimes I wake up at night and I hear you guys. <laughs> and, you know, I was just sort of like, oh, thank God, you know, that she does 
here, y'all. And someday maybe she'll appreciate the fact that she grew up in a household where her parents were passionate about each other and were pleasure mm-hmm. was flowing, you know. But it is something that I feel like it feels important to me that we figure out, oh, how do we allow for the pleasure of, of everyone, right? How does pleasure become something that is a universal standard for how you experience life? That's what I want. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, another book that, that and person who was involved, which was really, you know, moving for me was Starhawk. And at that point in time, Starhawk ah. came, did a Detroit summer, passed out the fifth sacred thing, and we were all reading it and, and, and thinking Ooh. about it. For you, it was Octavia Butler. Yes. How did you Octavia do, Butler. How yeah, did you I'm discover so... Octavia, and, <laughs> and how did she, she really, like, grasp your imagination? Yeah, she she touched me. You know, I started reading her work, and she was um, recommended to me. You know, someone sort of noticed that I was, I, I love Star Trek, I love Star Wars, I loved science fiction. I was starting to read a lot of, like, Philip K. Dick, um, Raymond Bradbury, like, just different people who um, were sort of sci-fi classics. And I, I loved thinking about, because a lot of sci-fi, you know, people are always like, oh, sci-fi is not literary, you know, what is it about? But for me, I've always found that science fiction, the best science fiction is really philosophical and it's really mm. talking about the really big ideas of the future and what ends up winning out. What do we want to win out? How could it win out? So I love science fiction. And then when I first read her work and I was like, wait, you know, she is writing young black women as the, um, you know, sort of heroic leadership figures of a new world and a new society. And I was just blown away by that. You know, now there's a lot more options. But when she started writing these stories, there just weren't many. You know, there just weren't many that were quality stories. And then she wrote really powerful and interesting stories. You know, there's a story in which um, we have reached the point of apocalypse. And 200 years after the apocalypse, this woman wakes up in an alien storage space and has to navigate on behalf of the species how to protect some aspect of humanity. And, you know, so it's another way, right? It's flipping the question on the head of what time is it on the clock of the world and what is it we need mm-hmm. to attend to and what fundamentally makes us human. Um, but I, you know, I'm just like, oh, I love this. And she played with gender. She played with age. She played with race and sexuality. And there was so much about community in her work, too, um, so much of the work, so much of her stories happen inside of these intentional or unintentional communities. Um, and so for her, it's always about, like, what is the life that happens inside community and how do we get good at getting our own needs met and communicating what our longings are and communicating the kind of future we want to move towards with the humans that we end up with. And you want to say she teaches a lot in her books is you don't get to choose who you're going to be in the apostles with. It's kind mm. of like, who are you with when stuff goes down? And how can you kind of make sure that you're with people as often as possible who you want to be around and who are aligned with your vision and values and who have some skills that will help keep you alive? Um, so I started obsessing over her and <laughs> reading everything. I got to see her speak. Um, and when I saw her speak, gratefully, I was not a full fan girl yet. So I think I was, you know, I was worshipful, but not on the floor, right? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, she passed away before I got a chance to really sit with her and be like, okay, 
I'm dedicating my life work to you. What's good, you know? Um, and it's been a gift and an honor to just get to be a scholar of her work. I'm not, I don't think of myself as an academic in any sense of that word. You know, I'm not really tied to institutions in that way, but I am a scholar. Um, I guess an independent scholar. You know, I'm studying all the time. I'm thinking all the time. And I'm, I'm reading and taking in information and processing it. And that's maybe one of the ways that I'm like Octavia Butler because I'm, I'm more extroverted and, and um, you know, there's just a lot that's different. But I am someone who sits and reads and takes in information and tries to process it through, through my imagination, you know, pathways in my brain and see what, if something new can come out or something that I haven't considered can come through. And I think that's how you get the best stories. I think it's how you get the best theories. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, this morning I was reading some, some breakthrough that physicists are having about trying to understand a relative theory of everything. And I was getting so excited because I'm like, I'm not a scientist, but I do think in that way. I think about those same things that scientists are thinking about, um, but I just apply it, you know, from a community perspective. And, um, and, you know, I feel like that's, you know, Grace and Octavia also have that in common. It's just like if you come into a house and there's 20 books open everywhere because you're trying to mm-hmm, understand mm-hmm. the entire world, um, I'm like that, that to me is what a modern, liberated intellectual can look like, and it's a good life, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's funny that you talk about because that's how I am. Maybe we are related. <laughs> and uh, I know, know I think we really are, Michelle. I think if we go back I, down the line I, of ground, we're going to find it. <laughs> I, I, we're going to find it. We're going to find it. Yeah. You know, and it was really funny because I know once I was someplace and there were some people who were trying to, to you know, impress Grace, you know, with their uh-huh. credentials. Uh-huh. And she turned around she asked me, you know, what did I think? And I just sort of told her, and they were sort of like, you know, and Grace told them I was an organic intellectual, which sounds yeah. sort of like a smart potato or something, you know. No, it's, like, it's great. Okay. <laughs> it's great, right? It's Gramsci. It's like that's the, to me, that's the kind of intellectualism I'm, I'm really interested in because I'll say this, like I, I feel like Grace also changed my thoughts around education. And I'm a college dropout, you know, in in some regard. I walked and I got I got um, an award from my school for being a great student, but I didn't actually get a degree because I failed at French. And <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, you know, have never been great at languages, but I was trying to be a full-time organizer and a full-time student at the same time, and it just didn't work, right? But I found um, all throughout school that I was that student who was always like, but I don't, I don't know about this, Right. I have a lot of doubts. I have a lot of questions. And I remember sitting in one of my college classrooms having a battle that almost moved me to tears where all of my, all of my peer students were just making the case for competition as the only way that humans could move forward. And to me, it was just so clear, so obvious. It was like we have to figure out how to cooperate with each other. Competition is not working for us. We're all going to die. No one's going to ever mm-hmm. win, you know. And so just feeling like, you know, in retrospect, I look back at that, and I'm like, of course, of course students feel that way because you get indoctrinated for 12 years in a competitive model. You're competing on test scores. You're competing to be the fastest. You're competing to be the smartest. You're competing to be talented and gifted. You're competing for grades to get into the right college, to get a job. 
you know, it's like every single aspect of your life has you pit against the people that are supposed to be your peers in your community. And then coming to Detroit, summer coming to Detroit and interacting with Grace and feeling like she was like, no, use that intelligence to figure out how we collaborate and how we cooperate with each other and how we work together to create a future. And I was just so compelled by it. And then, you know, saw that echoed in Octavia Butler's work where every one of her books in some ways is an exploration of what do you do with the blessing of life? What do you do with the miracle of being able to reason and to think? And will we ever outgrow our fatal flaw of, you know, hierarchy and intellect, that we use our intellect always to tear each other down? Will we outgrow that? And I just feel like that, you know, these are these big questions that you can build a life around. And that, to me, is what Grace was up to, too, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I sometimes you know, imagine the two of them in a conversation, even though oh, I don't quite really? believe that it's like, you know, this essence. I, I don't think it's necessarily like Grace as, as we would recognize her and Octavia as we would recognize her, but I love the idea of those two minds in a conversation mm-hmm. with each other, asking each mm-hmm. other questions, offering each other answers. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, <laughs> you, you, I mean, really, because sometimes I, I think that, gee, I wish Grace was here. You know, to talk, to talk I hear about her voice the, all the uh-huh. time, and to have these really expansive conversations. Yes. You know, I mean, yes. I think it'd be like so, so great. And you know, and what you've done, especially like yes. when you work with about the Octavia Butler, the Octavia's Brood, and you yes, work with other Octavia's people, like brood. you know. I mean, with Alexis Pauline Gums and, you know, yes. another person who, you know, I've talked to and I read her book, Spill, and it was like, I, you know, there's something about the power of words where you, can, where you can take it and read something and different people will interpret it. I heard some of that in, when you read some of those uh, at your book signing and then you, you ask people to interpret what, that yes. people hear the words and it moves them and touches them and yes. all these different ways. When yeah. you, when you, the more you, you became engaged and fell in love with the work of Octavia Butler, did you ever believe that it would be accepted? Like, I mean, I know what you, I was reading how um, one university <laughs> let it be part of the, but your book was part of their summer reading. I mean, did you ever oh, think yeah. that it go? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, <laughs> I I regularly, you know, I regularly have to sit back and be kind of like, I can't believe this is really happening mm-hmm. in my life because mm-hmm. I feel like I've basically been able to transfer, like, being a total sci-fi nerd um, into a pathway for justice. And, it, you know, and it's very real in me. You know, like, I, I tell people all the time, it's much easier for me to... to wrestle with ideas that they come in the format of a science fiction story. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and I think that actually a lot of people, a lot more people are like that than are willing to admit because, you know, so far it's been really looked down on. Like that's not a place where you pursue or, or engage ideas, although some of the most popular things in the world have done it in that way. You know, people tell me they don't like sci-fi. I'm like, do you don't like Star Wars? You don't like action adventures? You don't like the Marvel? You know, you don't like any of those things. And usually for younger people, they're like, oh, no, I do like that stuff, right? And I'm like, okay. Um, mm-hmm. But then I also, I get very surprised. Like when, we, when I first started having my own exploration of, like, Octavia, Octavia is a political space. We need to have this conversation. 
initially I was met by Kat Aaron and, and um, Hannah and Jenny and my sister Autumn was already thinking about this. And then I met Walida and Krista Franklin. There were just all these people who were like also kind of privately loving Octavia and in this like pursuit of how do we understand what she's offered us because she's offered us something that feels like prophecy. Um, and I, I want to say in that vein that if you love the, um, Alexis's book, Phil, you have mm-hmm. to read her book, The M Archive. I, have I got it. I have that book to uh-huh. everybody. To me, mm-hmm. that is a next piece of prophecy. Like she, she put some thoughts and um, the, just the energy of that book. It just feels like sacred channeling. It's something else. Mm-hmm. So, and, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like that. Like Octavia channeled something that allowed her to write the parable. And it's not, you know, I think when people think of channeling, it's like my brain went out the window and I just surrendered. I don't think it's that. I think channeling, when, and I'll say this from my own experience of, of doing this, is saying, you know, universe, spirit, God, whatever force you are, use me completely. You know, whatever has made life, whatever has made my life, like use me in the way that you need to. Make me of, of most impact in this lifetime. And that might mean use my intellect. It might mean, you know, use the relationships that I create, use my heart, use my parenting, use whatever it is. And I felt that way, you know, with Octavia's brood. And then I felt that way even more so with, with emergent strategy because it was a similar um, risk to take to be like, okay, I think somewhere between Octavia Butler and this flock of birds, there's something important to be said. And, mm-hmm. you know, and almost everyone I tried to explain it to initially was like, you, I, don't, I really don't understand what you're saying. And in some mm-hmm. ways that was what led me to be like, I need to write it as a book. Like I need to just write this out um, and start experimenting with this and doing some, some work around it. And it's been incredible. Um, and I feel really, like I feel a lot of relaxation in it that I don't know if I would feel if it was just like I came up with something out of my own brain that I'm trying to move in the world. Um, there's something really comforting about sitting in such a such an incredible lineage, you know, because mm-hmm. um, I'm just sort of like, look, you know, if you if you try to argue with me, then you have to also take on Audre Lord and Octavia Butler and Grace Lee Boggs and Tony K. Bambara, and, and I'm not walking by myself here. Like I can really feel these ancestors at my back and, and on my shoulders and egging me on. And I may absolutely misinterpret or reinterpret things. Um, you know, that, that's the gift of being alive and unique and being able to make mistakes and all of that. But I'm also like I'm doing due diligence to pay homage and to uplift and to carry on the lineage of people that I really think we all should be honoring in that way. And, you know, since I was raised in an educational environment where I never heard of these people until I finally got to college, right, Mm -hmm. Um, that a lot of my work is like how do I popularize and reference this work so that more and more people find it earlier and earlier in life? Because I think once you find Octavia and just read all her work or find Audre Lorde or find Tony Kippenbar or find Mm -hmm. these writers and read them, then you're on your own journey. You know, you read Grace's autobiography, you, you can wrestle with the ideas yourself. And I just feel a lot of my job is sort of pointing people in those directions and then saying, I, I think that this could mean this. You know, I think it could mean, I think if we try to think of ourselves as a flock of birds, 
and how do we how do we move, it aligns with transforming ourselves to transform the world. It aligns with that sense of having responsibility for what happens. Um, but, you know, that's my combination. The other thing that's exciting to me right now, Michelle, is that there are so many other people in experiments around these ideas, even from the Detroit Summer family. You know, Ill was mm-hmm. here at the opening the other night, and Ill is doing this, all this work with complex movements, and they're using arts and culture to continuously explore these ideas of emergence. And I'm like, that's so exciting to me, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. like experiments that keep flowing out, and I think everything about allied media projects is emergent strategies, and, you know, it's like we're all learning, drawing from the same well, but as the water moves through us, it comes to different results, and that is exciting to me. Yeah, it is. It really is, and that you, it, it's like a world of endless possibilities where, yeah. you know, it's just a, it's phenomenal to me. Every time I step into one of those spaces, I walk away right. going like, wow. And the fact but that... It, it does go all the way back down the route to what Jimmy was mm-hmm. talking about, what Grace was talking about, because I remember reading Jimmy's work and just that idea of not being a cog in someone else's wheel, um, mm-hmm. but being able to be liberated by technology, by thinking, by community. I was blown away, and I'm like, that's what we're doing. And each person in their own way is saying... None of us are going to be a cog in a wheel. We're all, all, no matter how small our contribution is, it's all going to matter. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's all going to matter. It's going to move us towards our own freedom. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. Well, we're going to take our second break. And when we come okay. back, I want to talk about the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute and your new book, Pleasure Activism. So we will awesome. be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here with Adrienne Marie Brown. So you wrote the book, and then now you have an institute where it's yeah. a, a, a hub. And, I mean, and do you find and, – and I don't even see that having, you know, say, oh, you made an institute and people are going to challenge your ideas because that's not how you're coming to it. You're not coming saying, yeah. I am the no. goddess of emergent strategy no. and you must do it this way. <laughs> you know, you're coming and saying, like, this is the universe of emergent strategy, you know, shine your light. Yeah. Yeah. What have you what yeah. have you learned when taking it from the book to this institute? Well, you know, when I first started the institute, I was very much like, I'm not sure what all this is gonna be yet, but I know I need some space in which to play with these ideas, some space from which to do programming. Um, and had an intention to grow, and it's all been moving very slowly. But last year, I did these big programs called Emergence, Emergent Strategy Emergence, 
through the Institute where basically I had people come and we just played with these ideas and played with the idea of like how do we learn and teach these ideas of emergent strategy in ways that don't just mean you sit here, I talk to you, right? (laughs) um, And, you know, or lecture you or whatever it is. And so we had three of them. Each of them was about, you know, between 65 and 75 people. Folks made their own way, paid their own way, you know, found a way to get here. I didn't charge anything for it. It was just, you know, if you have faith, come on through, (laughs) you know. And Uh we had a really incredible learning year through these big events. Um, I learned that they take a lot to pull off. Um, And each one, I structured it so that it was uh, three days of being with each other. You had someone that you were working with, you know, so right in the first few moments of the gathering, you paired up with someone, and that was your whoa, like your learning buddy throughout the entire time. So several points throughout the three days, you stop and go check in with that person and kind of reflect on what you're learning. And then I had the groups organize themselves by elements. So there was a fractal group, transformative justice group, you know, the resilience one, an adaptation group, different things like that. And then basically handed over the agenda to the group at that point. It was just like, so now y'all have to figure out how to engage and teach people from your element. And the conversations that they were engaging were, you know, things that we generated as a group that we were interested in talking about, which, again, they could run the gamut from pop culture to organizing culture to anything. Most people went with big questions in organizing, like how do we – how do we keep organizing when we're so overcome with grief? <laughs> you know, mm, like real mm-hmm. questions. We're like, I don't know. Let's figure it out together. Um, and so then they take over the rest of the workshop, and basically they're giving me exercises. They're giving me brilliance. They're giving me crying fits. You know, like it's amazing what humans can do in a very brief period of time and in intimacy building when you trust them. So that was the big learning of last year. And then there were practitioners, people I called practitioners, basically folks that I have collaborated with in the past as facilitators and organizers. And I had them come to each one, and it was a different group at each one, but they would just give feedback at the end um, to me, like stay for an extra day and just give me a whole bunch of feedback. And so from that feedback, it was like, oh, we need a team to hold this. It can't just be me. And then, oh, like, here's how it's logistically to flow to really best serve the group. And then, oh, you know, we should adjust this because it's important for me that there's, like, some tour of Detroit built into it that people get to know the city more. Um, But it's like, oh, when is the best time for that? And all this this stuff, you know, micro minutia. But then this year we're taking it out to these cities now. So from that group of about, whatever, uh, about 200-something people, there's clusters of attendees from different cities. And so this year, we're going to each of those cities to do an immersion there. And those folks who attended last year will be the ones who are helping to create and hold the space in their city. And I'll also come, but the hope, the idea is that it won't be centered around me being there or my presence. It will be centered around what the local community um, has decided to do to put it on, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other piece of the Institute is just having a space to do facilitation training. And I have been facilitating for such a long time and you really try to explain to people, like, this is the method that I use. Um, last year I did my first big, like, here's my facilitation training. <laughs> and I'm working on a book that's about facilitation as a next project. Um, 
And so this year is just going to be the, the programming that I offer in Detroit is mostly going to be facilitation training, and there will be slots specifically held for Detroiters um, in each of the trainings that I offer. So it's, it's been a learning process, and it's been very um, – I also am hiring staff this year. So after it being kind of like me and then a bunch of folks at AMP who help out and a bunch of folks who love and just like volunteer, this year I'm finally like, oh, <laughs> I should – have some help. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's clunky too. I'm very used to like, I handle stuff by myself and handle it badly, right? Like I'm just not cut out for email apparently. But I'm excited to be able to, to lean in with love to be supported um, and to sort of trust other folks to do what they're great at in terms of administration and logistics and fundraising so that I can be doing what I'm great at, which is ideating and facilitating and teaching. You know, you said something which is, uh, and, and it made me also think about what you talked about and how you said that when you brought the, the, these people together that often it, it was about, you know, um, I just forgot what you I don't know if you said sadness, grief, challenge, you know, and people are organizing around that. And, like, and, and as you stop and you think about it, you know, because I remember when, I, like I told you, when Grace was doing, like, the thing for So Sad. It was run by Clementine Barfield, and it was about the trauma of having her son killed. I've talked to uh-huh. trans activists who say, you know, that, yeah. yeah, they're going out and doing it, but there's, it's about this trauma that they're doing it. There's a grief. And pleasure activism, part of what you were saying is that, you know, activism, that there's supposed to be a part of it that, that's about the pleasure, of it, you know, yes. and and yes. often activism, like I said, it's like you're looking at, you know, when we started Detroit Summer, I remember Jimmy saying one time he was going down the street and he realized that there were some young men coming and he crossed the street and how sad that made him oh, that he was disconnecting yeah. from young people and that wasn't what he wanted to do. And mm. here's your book. And that was one of the things that I remember hearing you say, that activism around pleasure. I mean, did that come out of of seeing (laughs) and hearing these stories? You know, those stories, and it's basically like I keep, you know, I kept coming back to this. Like one of the earliest things I did in my work career, I worked at a place called the Harm Reduction Institute. Um, which is based in New York, and educates people around drug use and sex work and what are the harms that come from that and how do you reduce them. And a lot of what I learned there was this, this idea, this set of ideas that, you know, it doesn't work in this world to just tell people to be abstinent, to deny themselves pleasure, to deny themselves relief when you don't acknowledge the social conditions that people are in. And I was so struck by that. Um, and there was an organizer there named Keith Kyler who founded uh, something called Housing Works, which is an incredible, brilliant program that um, created all these different in economic, you know, economic projects in order to raise money um, in the fight against AIDS. So he was the first person who ever said the words pleasure activism to me, and I was like, wait, what? And he was like, you've got to enjoy your life. We have to enjoy our lives. That is our freedom and that's, that's so crucial to us, right? I was like, okay. And he died shortly after that, but it stuck mm-hmm. with me. You know, how things do. And I feel like that was a big thing. When I came to Detroit, we would have, you know, these dinners. And I remember being at these dinners when I was organizing with Charity Hicks 
we're doing this food festival, uh-huh. and we do these events called Cook, Eat, Talk. And we would get people together, and they would be breaking bread, eating, cooking for each other, learning about food. And it was just like a total pleasure. Like it didn't feel like organizing, as I've always thought of organizing. It felt like something else. It felt like living, living and loving each other and taking care of each other and teaching each other through life. That was so good, right? And I was like, this is the kind of organizing I want to be doing. And this is the kind of life I want to be living. Um, And then, you know, I was just always interested in drugs and sex and how people were drawn to those things, how we use those things, and how to not be numbing. So I started gathering thoughts, and then I did this column for Bitch Magazine called The Pleasure Dome. And I did it for about a year, and it really pushed me in some new ways to be like, well, what, what are the intersections I'm really interested in? Because it's not just like here's the best way to, you know, give oral sex. It's really like what is the most liberatory way to be in your body and in connection with other bodies? to be in right relationship with the planet and in right relationship with other humans. And as I started asking myself that, this question came to me, which was like, well, what would it look like if we even made justice and liberation work the most pleasurable experience we could have? And it was really a question. It's still a question. Like, it's still a live question for me. But I feel very connected to um, communities that are figuring out ways to do this to bring joy and pleasure into being with each other and to start to recognize that that is one of the things that oppression takes away from us is that, you know, we really get convinced that pleasure is something that only belongs to those who have tons of resources and tons of time and are oppressing others in order to have that, uh-huh. you know, and that we're just supposed to be in service to them. I meet black women all the time who've never had a proper orgasm, who don't believe that they should get a massage, you know, just like basic, basic things that are like, this is just caring for your body, honey. And, and then you start to get care. Like, who taught you not to love yourself? You know, who taught you not to care for your body? And, oh, the answer is pretty clear. You know, it's 400 years of living in a place that doesn't see me as a whole human and where I have to be in fear every time I walk outside. Like, that mm. does something to you. And so, I'm like, well, then we have to reclaim what that does. And that's where this book enters the conversation. And again, it enters in a lineage because it's really, really, um, you know, the, the foundational text of it is Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic, which um, I, I got permission to reprint in the book. And it just, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm just like, I remember the first time I heard it, it kind of broke me open. This idea uh-huh. that once you have truly experienced erotic aliveness, it becomes impossible to settle for suffering and self-negation. I was like, okay, that's the path. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. you can't convince people, you can't tell people. They have to feel it inside themselves to feel that they are free, to feel that they deserve to feel good, and then how to do that and stay in right relationship. So that's, that's what's going on in the book. It's, I've written parts of it, and then a lot of it is actually essays um, and interviews that I gathered from other people in the community who are doing groundbreaking work related to this. So, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> I had I interviewed this woman. She her name is Pearl Noir, and she's okay. the queen mother of burlesque. She's African American. Yeah. I mean, she's African American. I mean, oh, I mean, she, I mean, she's going to she's trying to archive some things about it, but in part. 
what got her into burlesque was she said that she was always, she was told she wasn't light enough, she wasn't pretty yeah. enough, yeah. she wasn't tall enough, she was a, a, a survivor of sexual abuse. And mm. she said in that part of, of reclaiming her body and, and that beauty and feeling, and I thought of her when you talked about, you know, being in front of the mirror and dancing naked. And, and yes. you know, and she talked about, she said, and she does workshops. And she said one yes. of the first things that she does with people is to have them look in the mirror at that person, but to, to see their beauty, their, you know. Yes. And she said, and how there's been people who have, broke down and cried where they thought that they were coming in just to like, you know, learn how to, to shake what their mama gave them, but, exactly. but putting them in touch with, with that and telling her story about how, you know, how she left home with a backpack and $200 and, and how she's been all over the world and, and seeing and, and, and that part about not feeling that we're good enough, not feeling that we're, we're, we have to live up to somebody else's, you know, standards of beauty, particularly as black women. And, I mean, it, it's just like it's when you were talking about that, I could hear her voice talking about how looking in that mirror and seeing, you know, I am all that, you know. And uh-huh. I mean, just, fasc- just fascinating to see. And I, and I could connect with what you were talking about. But interesting, you did one of these, um, the exercises, and I was talking to a white <laughs> man who yeah. had all of these issues about his body, you know, and, yeah. you know, I'm not as young as I used to be and all like that. And he said, okay. I guess I need to want to go home and look in the mirror and see, you know, I'm still me. You know, I'm, I'm all these good things about me. Oh, and that I is, that. you know, I mean, yeah. I so, love that. Yeah, it's well, just know, like it was so fascinating at the event, right, because the room, you know, when, we, when I first walked in the, at, to the event, it was mostly white folks in the room. And mm-hmm. that happens a lot when I come to bookstore events, which I don't know what that's about. But, you know, and then, and then people of color came in um, a little later, <laughs> you know, as we do. But it was interesting because when I asked that question um, initially about, you know, basically do you feel like you have access to pleasure in your life or not, the two first answers were both um, men, men or let me say, humans who look to me to be white cis men. That's how they presented mm-hmm. in the room. And both of them were like, yeah, I can access it. <laughs> and then the folks who were like, I can't access it as much were women and women of color who, you know, just spoke. And I didn't notice it in the room, but it was, I, I tucked it away, right? But it's something that I'm really aware of. Um, but then that nakedness question, to me, always makes people kind of, have to do a deeper level of analysis of their own pleasure and their own comfort in their own life. Because even people who are like, oh, yeah, 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 I do it all the time. But I'm like, but do you really look at your body and feel it? Do you love it? Do you look at it from, like, lots of different angles? Do you have a sense of what it is that lovers will be attracted to in you? Are you aware that it's a miraculous space, you know, or do you only attend to it if something goes wrong? (laughs) Um, And it's just, uh, you know, having these conversations with people about what is your nakedness like for you and how do you get more comfortable in it um, and how do you get more comfortable being loved in it, you know, Um, then a different conversation comes out. And I love kind of flipping around and listening as people, you know, ear hustling, right, as people Mm -hmm. um, 
as people offer up that because I'm just like so many people, so few people really feel super excited about their naked body. And that's one of the things I feel like I'm working on is, mm-hmm. you know, if you love the miraculous nature of your own body, um, I think it helps you to tap into the miraculous nature of all bodies. Mm-hmm. Okay, now this is, this is, a, this is a, 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 one, one for you to think on. So yesterday I'm talking with Stephen Fullwood, and he's an archivist. In fact, he used to be at the Schomburg Museum, and he was talking about how particularly in our community, it's important to hang on to things. And, and things tell stories, and it tells how you live. And I was shared with him how I remember one of the first times when I went to Grace and Jim Lee's house, and I was sitting there talking to him, and I think that I don't know which one of them said it, and they were like, you know, we remember when Malcolm sat in that very chair, and he told us such uh-huh. and such thing. And I'm looking at this chair like, wow, this chair is history, <laughs> you know. And yes. History isn't always in books. Okay, now to you. Okay, at the end of your presentation, you told me that you were Marie, Marie Kondo in your life and you had a bag of things. <laughs> and I know that yes. what she's talked about is keeping only those things that spark joy. Yes. Okay, so two parts. <laughs> all right, first of all, <laughs> as you go through these things, are you keeping the things that are sparking joy? And is that part of pleasure mm-hmm. activism, and then also, do you ever wonder in the thing that might I'm not be sparking up. joy, mm-hmm. you know, in you right now, are you giving away a part of when generations now of people are looking at, like that chair, okay? I, you can look That's at that great. chair that Jimmy and Grace had, where Malcolm said, and it gives you a sense of the connection that Detroit had to the civil rights movement, what they did like that. Yes. So is there a yes. contradiction going there that, they are part of it. I love that. Sparking joy. Well, and- I will say this. You know, mm-hmm. in some ways, when it comes to Marie Kondo's actual method, we're playing a mm-hmm. little bit of a telephone game here because I have not read <laughs> the book or watched the show. Mm-hmm. I really just, like, picked up on stuff through memes and, like, articles about it. And, you know, the picking something up, does it spark joy, et cetera. And I wrote something about this because I've been doing a, a practice like this of only keeping things that I really love since um, since I moved from New York, uh, let's see, in 2006. Um, and I'm a Virgo. You know, I love to go through and get rid of clothes, get rid of things. But one of the things I do is I keep things that have significant uh, sentimental value. And I have, so I have like a little bag that holds sentimental clothing, right? Stuff that's mm-hmm. like I may never fit into this again or ever feel like I need to wear this again. But this was my prom dress, and the, and meaningful things happened, and I want to have this, you know. Um, or this is my um, I'm trying to think. I have this shirt. <laughs> I actually have a lot of these like t-shirts that are meaningful because of who gave them to me, or a moment. But I don't really wear t-shirts, so you know, or it's rare for me to wear a t-shirt, especially more than once, because they don't really wash well. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but you know, so I will keep stuff of significance. And, and as I've been going through, um, that's one of the things I pay attention to is like, okay, you know, who, who gave me this book? Is it signed by anyone? Um, what does it mean to me? But, you know, I've also noticed there's things like there's newsletters, for instance, that were really important. Um, I have like a, a newsletter that Grace gave me that has writing in it from Bunya and Bryant that they were doing like, basically Afrofuturist workshops in the 70s. And 
it's really meaningful to me, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so trying to figure out, like, okay, where do I need to store this? How do I want to store this so that it's really treated well and it lives and it lasts and it's not just in some random stack somewhere getting moved around and around and around my house, right? Like how do I actually, maybe I need to frame it. How do I honor it, right? So a lot of, for me, the process is not just willy-nilly throwing away things that do have meaning. It's very much thinking about that. That question of sparking joy is a real one. So if something sparks a really beautiful, joyful memory, that's a way of sparking joy. Um, That chair, I just have to say, it's so funny because, like I mentioned, I was in Northern Ireland last week, and uh, we got all these, like, radical tours of the city from folks who were prisoners of war and hunger striking and all of this. And then to contrast that, they took us on a tour of Belfast City Hall. And the City Hall mentions none of the radical history, really, um, and instead points to all these kind of inane things. <laughs> but one of the things they point to is when the Queen of England came to visit once sometime in history, she sat on this chair for probably an hour or something. They have the chairs set up in a special display. The chairs are like completely falling apart, but they were sat <laughs> upon by the queen. And so mm-hmm. there they are. And so as you were talking about that, I'm like, now that Malcolm X chair, you know, which Grace has said that, you know, she'll say that. This is the chair that Malcolm X sat in. Now you're sitting in it. Other people sit in it. And I love that she wasn't so precious. Like, well, no one can sit in it because Malcolm sat in it. But mm-hmm. I'm also like, well, now, you know, how do we make sure that that chair gets preserved? And how do we make sure that Grace's chair gets preserved, right? Because I'm like, exactly. her chair with her Afghan and that corner and that room has held so much transformation, so many key conversations, so much learning. Um, and, you know, I know that the, that the Boggs folks are, are really thinking about all of that. And, you know, I trust them to love her and to love the things, you know, but it, it really is like, oh, what are the things that are not just precious at an individual level, but are precious at a collective level that spark joy and that help us remember our radical legacy at a collective level. And this is something I'm always thinking about is like, I wish we had more collective archiving space um, mm-hmm. and ways to hold on to things that, you know, when it gets hard inside your own space. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to start that as another project in Detroit, like some kind of radical community archive. (laughs) Well, hey, you know, I'm there. (laughs) Well, Adrian, our time time is coming to an end, but I think that this is the beginning of many conversations that I hope you and I are able to have. Me too. Um, Thanks for having me on this show. I'm really honored. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, like I said, it. Detroit Summer is so important to me, and every one of these mm. routes, to see that it keeps going, it yes. just means so much to me, you know. And yes. to see you and to see the work that you hear and to hear that the, the spirit still lives out just means, it means the world to me, and I thank you. Um, I thank how, you. if yeah. people want to reach you, what's the best way for them to reach you? So in, if people want to reach me, if they just want to, like, know more about the work, that is mm-hmm. happening. There's a few things. On Facebook, there's pages for each of the different projects. Like Octavia's Root has a page. Emergent Strategy has a page. Pleasure Activism has a page. So to follow, like, specific threads of the work, that's a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my website, adriamariebrown.net, um, is a great mm-hmm. place to sort of check in on, like, that's where I tend to do posting. Like when I'm, like, I'm ideating, I'm thinking about stuff. 
I have a blog mm-hmm. there, and that's often where you'll get a first taste of ideas that I'm working on that may later become, uh, you know, bigger projects. And then I'm on Instagram. <laughs> it's my favorite uh-huh. of the social media places. Um, and I tend to post, you know, like events, you know, um, book events, book touring stuff, things like that tend to happen there. Um, yeah, and if people are actually like, oh, I want to book you, you know, something, then there's Allied Media Projects that has a whole booking speakers bureau um, that Nandi Comer um, runs. And so that's booking at alliedmedia.org. And that's, that's the best way to figure out, like, if you want to be part of the book tour or you have an idea for that. So those are some places. Okay. Well, Adrian, um, like I said, we will stay in touch. Um, yeah. And because – oh, sorry, though. So we have to sit right, down someday and have tea or something. I have more stories to tell you. I can, I can tell awesome. you great stories for, uh, forever, you know, but let's really. Let's take a Between yeah, Grace let's and Detroit <laughs> Summer, like you said, change your trajectory in my life, too. So. Yeah. I'm okay. glad to be well, there. We're, I'm glad we're in that number. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. look, I will stay in touch and we'll plan on that, okay? I certainly will. All right. Thank you. Okay. Michelle. Bye. All right. Bye bye. I want to thank today's guest, author, activist, and emergent strategist, Adrienne Marie Brown. Her books are Octavia's Brood. Emergent Strategy, and the recently released Pleasure Activism. Information on her work is at adriannemariebrown.net. For information about the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, contact the Allied Media Project at alliedmedia.org. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.